well. After much consternation and division on January 20th, 2021. Joe Biden was sworn in as 46th president of the United States. But what does a new administration mean to the global digital transformation? And when it comes to blockchain and innovation, what must it pay attention to? Welcome to Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into blockchain and the emerging technologies that shape our world at the intersection of business, politics, and economy. It's what we cover right here on Forecast News. I'm Forecast Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau. Well, as innovation in blockchain and other emerging technologies take us into the modernization and digitization phase, when it comes to government change, at times has been glacial, both functionally at the agency levels and even at the policy level. Question is, what will the new Biden administration do? What should the new Biden-Harris administration do? And that's really the question in focus for Blockchain Research Institute's latest strategic report. This is a 122-page report on strategy, policy, and action for the Biden-Harris administration. This is a report co-authored and led by multi-best-selling author and Blockchain Research Institute think tank executive chairman Don Tapscott, whose face is very familiar uh, to many of you, whose TED Talk in 2016 on how blockchain is changing the world has now surpassed 5.2 million views. Don, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Angie. Now, if you could add two more viewers, assuming they haven't already been watching, what would you like President Biden and Vice President Harris to understand about the potential of blockchain? Well, I think that the first thing I'd like them to understand is that um, that there's a new paradigm in technology that's emerging. And for 40 years, we've had an internet of information. Uh, and now we're getting something new, an internet of value. For anything of value from money, securities, intellectual property, the data in our identities, art, music, government contracts, deeds, votes, can be managed, stored, transacted in a secure and private way and where trust, which is deeply needed in American society, is not achieved by an intermediary. It's achieved um, by technology, at least the foundation for trust, by cryptography and, and some clever code. So we have an internet of value now, and that's an extraordinary thing. And Secondly, that this is part of a broader shift towards a second era of technology. For 40 years, we've had mainframes, mini computers, PCs, uh, the internet, the web, the mobile web, uh, social media, the cloud, big data. And now technology is infusing itself into everything, into the uh, trillions of physical objects that become animated. We have technologies that learn and do things that they weren't programmed. And to, to us, the foundation of that is this internet of value or blockchain. Um, so, because now for the first time in history, people can trust each other peer-to-peer uh, -to, -peer to do transactions and all kinds of things in the economy. So this is not something that is used fundamentally by criminals. Uh, as many people think in the US, I mean, Janet Yellen recently was quoted in a hearing is saying that she thought the key or at least a key purpose for Bitcoin was for nefarious criminal activity, including terrorism. This is just not true. 
sure, there are criminals that use this platform, but and they're always the first to adopt any exciting new technology. But a third, or sorry, 3% of all cash transactions used for crime, maybe a percent for Bitcoin. And in fact, uh, smart law enforcement agencies use Bitcoin and other technologies like that to catch the bad guys. So this is an historic opportunity. And the opportunity is not um, just to have better government and to embrace this technology, to have uh, better operations in government. The opportunity is, is to change the way that the economy works, to embrace this technology into the currency, um, to uh, use this next generation of technology to build a true innovation economy, uh, to enable America to be the first country in the world where citizens have a self-sovereign identity, and that would be a, a, a truly extraordinary uh, thing. And in many ways, to change the whole model of democracy from uh, a traditional model that we've had for, for centuries, arguably, into a very different model. And technology, of course, can't do that, but it's a key uh, enabler for a whole new model where citizens are engaged. So that's why we wrote this report. We want them to step back, think big, and to make a turn. Because right now, the country doesn't understand this opportunity, and it does a whole number of things related to this technology, which are dumb and which hurt prosperity and uh, basic uh, uh, rights of citizens. So now's the time for some fresh thinking. Let's let's talk about the IT issue. Um, you know, we we have seen even just legacy code uh, really be obstacles for even the last stimulus checks. Um, you know, where we've we've had to bring in armies of uh, old IT guys and computer systems analysts that remember the original programming language that most people have left to you know, left behind because there's so much more better out there. And, and yet, um, even just the basics of, of that has not been improved upon. Um, is this a political uh, intransigence? Is it, is it, you know, an inability or, or a dis, possibly a disregard uh, that this is even important? Well, I think that there are a number of uh, problems here. And it's long been hoped that technology could help uh, create better, cheaper government. That was the mantra of a report in the early 1990s by Al Gore. It was called Reinventing Government. But I think if you ask any Americans today if technology is somehow enabled a fundamentally more responsive or lower cost uh, government, they'd uh, scratch their heads. And um, the, the, there are... There are problems that are sort of in, endemic to the whole ways that not just governments, but organizations operate. Uh, governments grew up uh, in the industrial age and they, in their architecture, modeled the traditional industrial age corporation, which was hierarchical and it was uh, vertically integrated. It was command and control. And as they became bigger, corporations became more bureaucratic. But at least corporations had the tonic of the market to force them to respond and change 
whereas that hasn't happened so much with government. And then we brought in all this technology and what it tended to do was encode old processes and old structures and old ways of doing things. So today we have uh, the, the, the organization of today locked into the technology of the past and vice versa, where technology locks us into the old models. So um, this tinkering is not gonna fix its problem. We need to do what we call for in the report is to have a sort of digital martial plan where we apply technology in a completely new way with the goals of, of not just reducing costs, streamlining and so on, but, but fundamentally changing the way that services are created and delivered um, uh, to, to citizens. And in doing so, to actually finally, after decades now, achieve that initial vision of Al Gore many years ago, which was to reinvent the model of government to make it more open, more transparent, more responsive, more like a network as opposed to an old a command and control bureaucracy. Yeah. And we outlined some ideas in the report on how that can be done. So you've got five digital priorities for the Biden-Harris administration. So just, just to list them out here for everyone, uh, it's cybersecurity and protecting identity, that's one, privacy and individual autonomy, um, embracing the digital dollar and other cryptocurrencies, uh, retooling government services, engaging citizens and holding officials accountable, and that all leads up to rebooting America's innovation economy. It, briefly explain these five priorities for the audience. What, why is blockchain technology your recommendation for the Biden administration to explore addressing all of these issues? Well, we started out quite intentionally with number one, being solving the, the problem of data in American society, and for that matter, in all advanced societies today, which is the data is the new asset class of the digital age. It's created largely by citizens through our interaction. We leave this trail of digital crumbs as we go throughout life. And we create this data, but we don't own it. We don't even have access to it. We can't control how it's used. You're talking about the individual, you and me. Yeah, individual. The person. Yeah. Yep. And uh, this data is swept up by these so-called digital conglomerates, which, by the way, I think is a fantastic term. We wrote a paper at least 15 years ago arguing that companies like Google and and Amazon and so on were, were a new species of business. That the problem is not today that they're monopolies, the problem is that they own the asset class of the digital age. And the virtual Angie may know more about you than you do because you can't remember what you bought a year ago or said a year ago or your exact location or what medication you had or what diagnosis you had and so on. But even though it's this identity, this digital identity that you have is very powerful. You don't know. And most people think, well, that's a big problem because of privacy. And it certainly is. You look at the social score in China, you can kind of see how that's an issue where if, uh, you know, you don't pay a, a traffic ticket or something, maybe your kid doesn't get into a good school. But, uh, and privacy is the foundation of freedom. We need to get our, our identities back. 
But it's a much bigger problem than that. It means that you don't have access to this data to plan your life. It means that you can't uh, monetize the data. And, and we're creating the most powerful, wealthy institutions in history through ownership of our data. It means that the data is not secure. It's going to be hacked. It's on traditional servers. And we're all going to be picking up the pieces, as often occurs. And the final one is that all this data is in these silos, so it can't be put to a social purpose. Like, say, during a pandemic, we can't access our medical data in an anonymized way for epidemiologists and others to help um, uh, attack a big social problem. So the solution for this is not that these companies and their benevolence should give us data or that we should have laws like the GDPR to protect our privacy and so on. What we need is a self-sovereign identity that's owned by us and where we can use it, we get our digital identities back and so we can manage this data responsibly for ourselves. And we outline the vision on how that can be done and it's linked to the pandemic. Now that's one of the five. Uh, that's actually part of one of the five big areas. So you can see the report covers a lot of turf. Under that section, we also deal with the autonomy of the individual, the problem of cybersecurity, which of course is, uh, is paramount in Russian hackers' uh, cyber attacks on the US uh, really need to serve it as a wake up call. But we also argue that we need to close the digital divide um, the term, the digital divide, I don't know if yeah. you know, but actually, uh, I coined that term in my 1997 book, Growing Up Digital, and there's a whole chapter on it. It's an extraordinary thing. It's what we're seeing right now, Don. I mean, you, if, as COVID-19 has kept children at home uh, and trying to attend school, you, you see it firsthand. When you don't have stable Wi-Fi, when you don't even have a laptop, when your electricity is about to turn off because your parents have lost their job or your parent uh, has lost their job. I mean, this is the crux of the digital divide. Yeah. And the, it's been exacerbated by the yeah. pandemic. As many yeah. problems in society have, you know, the problems of race and uh, color and poverty and uh, even disabilities and so on have. Um, the, these problems have been brought to fore very quickly. And there may be a silver lining here. It's that they're causing us to step up and address these. The digital divide. What did I say? 1997. That was a long time ago. And we still have all around the world, including in the most powerful and wealthy country in the world. Yeah. And that leads us to the other thing, which is education, right? How do you create an environment for innovation beyond the policy level and, and you know, foundationally, all, all of those things on the enterprise side and the government side? But when you draw it back, you know, and, and you're trying to nurture talent, you're trying to nurture the next generation where this is more than apparent um, as critical to our future. You know, when you don't have that education, um, that's going to be a problem. And you discuss that in your report. We do uh, in a number of ways. Um, one is that we said that government leaders need to get up to speed on this. If you think Bitcoin is something that exists mainly to help criminals, it shows that you uh, lack knowledge uh, big time. 
And that's reflected throughout all of these institutions. Um, we have all of our regulatory bodies that were designed for an old paradigm and, and thinking about what is a digital asset and what is money and so on. And the precondition for any kind of change here is that people wake up and they get themselves informed. Now, Angie, the broader issue of education was one I was itching to attack as a whole sixth area in this report. And we just, it was, it's uh, such a big one. But I think that the American education is in a total crisis, okay? The, the difference between the good public schools and the terrible public schools is so vast because it's all based on funding in terms of the neighborhoods. I've reported it in. I, I've reported from inner city schools uh, where, um, you know, the property taxes were not high. And so the schools were not funded. And it's, it's beyond third world. It's, it's, it's really embarrassing. The class size is 55 students. And, yeah. and in that situation, the, the role of the teacher is sort of custodial. You know, it's just trying to keep, keep order, really. And so, and then the difference between the public schools and the private schools, there's that massive gap again. So this, this is a really big problem. And secondly, we've got this old paradigm in learning, an old model of where, uh, you know, the teacher stands at the class or <clears throat> lectures in the university to students who are often sort of passive recipients in a one-way model. Now, I'm a little hard on lectures, which is sort of ironic because last uh, before the pandemic that year, I probably gave about 100 of them. But to me, the lectures, the process whereby the notes of the student go to the, or, or the uh, notes of the teacher go to the notes of the student without going through the brains of either. You know, and it's a, it's a, a good model of pedagogy for the 15th century. But for today, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's not that computers should replace humans in education. It's for certain classes of learning, mastery, where there's a right or wrong answer. Nobody should be sitting in a class um, in their first year of university, a statistics class with 600 other students with a prof explaining what an analysis of variance is. They should do that interactive in a self-paced way, preferably with a human tutor, but no one can afford all that, so we do. But technology and that frees up everybody else to do all the important stuff in learning, which is about, you know, group discovery and projects and, and small uh, class debate and, and uh, you know, discussion and, and so on. So um, reinventing the model of pedagogy around education and blockchain can be critical to that because it's at the heart of the whole credentialing of systems and of teachers and of schools. Um, that's just such a juicy topic, but we decided um, we're not going to boil the entire ocean. We'll just boil the Pacific, the Atlantic, and the Indian Ocean, and we'll leave it at that. Well, let's, let's talk about competition, too. Um, you know, where we're based here in Asia, we see it. I mean, the innovation gap is widening. Uh, you just take a look at China, for example. You've got uh, Chinese inventors filing close to 59,000 patents in 2019. This is pre-COVID. Uh, compare that to uh, 57,000 uh, from the U.S. Um, and, and for China, it's just leapfrogged. 
really um, to to what we're seeing now. We've got a seven year lead now on the central bank backed digital currency that now probably 80 percent of central banks are, are now considering. United States, I'll note, is still in the research phase. Uh, you've got an incredible organization like the Digital Dollar um, and the Chamber of Digital Commerce, uh, you know, and it's led by some really great um, intellects, uh, you know, essentially. But you still have the the policy voices from, you know, Jay Powell saying, you know, first we must understand uh, when when challenged about whether or not U.S. would embrace a digital dollar. To Janet Yellen, uh, to your point that, you know, uh, just, you know, whether or not uh, cryptocurrency is something that the United States uh, even wants to embrace, um, but it's coming. So how would you advise the Biden Harris administration on a digital currency? Yeah. Well, this is one of the five sections uh, of the report. And we point out that there, there are these three classes of currencies. And they need to change their attitude on each of them. They're all of the traditional sort of, if you like, community-based currencies like Bitcoin. Um, and I'm sure lots of people watching this are having a happy dance right now with the price. Thank you, Elon Musk. Um, and we need a complete rethinking of that. This is not an evil thing. It's something for which there are all kinds of use cases and which can contribute to building an innovation economy. Second are the corporate currencies, like Facebook's uh, DM. And um, they're wrong to completely shut that out or to say that because we've got issues with Facebook, we're not even going to look at the question of a a corporate currency because considered with caution, these things could play a role. And then there's the issue of central bank digital currencies, which uh, this is like a train. They're, they're come looking for the light at the end of the tunnel and the train is the light, you know, it's coming right at them. <laughs> and, um, you know, if China uh, wins with uh, its uh, central bank digital currency, um, they'll roll it out across one belt, one road uh, into Africa, um, into Southeast Asia. The, uh, the RMB becomes the, uh, the de facto currency of trade choice, yeah, yeah. yeah. The currency of record, uh, replacing U.S. dollar, and that's the end of the American hegemony in the world. So people like, uh, as you mentioned, Christian Carlo with the Digital Dollar Project, who also uh, contributed to our report, as the others you mentioned, the Chamber of Digital Commerce. The report was done in collaboration with the chamber. Um, they're trying to get a, a wake-up call on this. But, you know, the trouble is that old paradigms die hard. Mm. And, um, you know, leaders of old paradigms have great difficulty embracing the new because vested interests fight against change. And new paradigms cause uh, dislocation and conflict and uncertainty. They're often received with coolness or worse, you know, mockery, hostility. And uh, so there's this problem of, of paradigms, and that's the way I've been calling it over the years. Uh, the late great um, Clay Christensen talked about the innovator's dilemma. You know, uh, people have talked about in the box and outside the box. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talked about the tipping point. All of these are sort of pushing at the same idea. I wrote the paradigm shift uh, in the early 90s. 
And but the idea is a good one. And I think that again, this is the problem in America, is that all these people are locked into this old model. And I'm reading a very good book right now about when you how when you have an old uh, empire sort of replaced by a new empire that that um, these changes in human history are punctuated by war. And uh, the author goes through and he makes the case that for most of the big transformations, there was a war. And tr trying to make argue that can we avoid a war between the United States and China? Because, um, you know, according to all the data, it's pretty much inexorable that China will be the largest economy in the world. It's also 2050, and now we're looking at 2031. 30, yeah. So, um, so America, you know, has got to wake up. It's got to do the right things to be relevant in the world, um, and to provide some thoughtful leadership rather than just being reacting badly uh, to all kinds of things. In the last four years, talk about reacting badly. It's been a school on how you could do almost everything wrong to undermine uh, the strength. Um, uh, not just of America as a as a powerful force, but as a as a democracy that that cares about its citizens, that engages its citizens in the electoral process, and that treats people with any kind of justice. I mean, there's there's so much to to work through here, but you know that competition divide is is as clear as day. You've got. China's blockchain services network. This is a technology infrastructure that is onboarding uh, practically every blockchain protocol that, that we're seeing, uh, and it's adding new ones every day. It's, it's got the big ones on board, um, and it's creating this, this uh, fabric of functionality uh, that will allow it to work with governments and enterprises um, you know, around the world. Now that's, that's China's building that right now. This is a couple of months old, uh, but this is how fast uh, it is moving forward with this. It's not to say that United States or the West can't do something similar, but fact is we're not seeing it. Yeah. It can do something similar, but it's got to do it more through consensus and good leadership. Can't force it. And that's one of the odd sort of bizarre benefits of having a planned or partially planned economy is you can decide we're going to move 10 million people from here to there. We're going to create a bunch of new cities mm. over here and bada bada bing, it, uh, you just do it. Or we're going to adopt blockchain. The last time I was in China, which was a while ago, pre-pandemic, obviously, I gave a speech and I was introduced by the vice chair of the uh, Communist Party. And he read greetings from Xi Jinping and uh, the welcoming everyone to the conference and so on. I was giving the open talk. And, and he said, I want to underline this theme of, of blockchain because to me and to us, this is one of the two technologies of the next decades for China. And so, wow, billion dollars goes into Hangzhou. To uh, to or or to uh, Hainan, you know, to create the free mm -hmm. island that's going to be the blockchain pilot center. And these huge, huge changes in the United States. You got people saying, mm, "Bitcoin isn't that what criminals use?" 
So uh, yeah. the contrast is glaring and it's getting worse. Well, I mean, there's a hopeful note, right? Um, you know, as we, I mean, I could, we could talk about this, uh, but I would absolutely encourage, and we'll have this on our site, uh, to to go through that 122 page report, and just pick up on some of the themes here that Don, you've you've just really been um, broad about uh, sharing. Um, but let let's 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 talk about what is hopeful, which is there are a number of new um, uh, policy leaders that are getting into place, like uh, Gary Gensler, um, who's uh, been picked to lead the SEC, um, who is not of the class of what is blockchain. Uh, he's, he's very well versed. He, uh, and there are other, there are other uh, officials and policymakers who are increasingly uh, reaching um, those roles, but with a, a really fantastic background. You know, the, like Gensler, they might have taught blockchain or crypto. He did it at MIT. Um, how, how do you envision incoming leaders of regulatory agencies uh, to, to really kind of address some of the things that you think are critical to well, this that's administration? One of the, that's one of the reasons we wrote the Court is we hope that the new administration will select people like um, Gensler, and we'll see how he uh, pans out. But boy, if there's anybody who ought to understand what this is all about, it's him. And if they get leaders that are knowledgeable in all kinds of these key uh, regulatory positions, there's a hope. And I don't mean to sound too negative here. Um, if anything, the the, the report talk, talks about how you have a demand pull and a technology push for change. And the demand pull comes from this extraordinary need to rebuild the economy. First of all, to use technology to fight a pandemic, but to rebuild the economy, to rebuild American democracy, to start getting innovation happening and funding of entrepreneurship in a more uh, equal way. And to, um, you know, to bring about a whole series of profound changes in our institutions, and that's pulling for change. Then you've got this push from this historic thing. I mean, this doesn't happen that often. You get mm. a whole new paradigm in technology. It's been 40 years of the making with AI and blockchain and, and the Internet of Things, the trivergence, uh, as a, a term I've been using uh, recently. And these two are... Are, are creating a, a lot of real momentum, I think, where you have people like Gensler being considered for a, for a, a top post. So um, the second thing I'd mention is that, you know, the American innovation is, is historic and, and the, the ability and adaptability of, of, of the economy and its people and its innovators um, to to come up with new things and to uh, think outside of the old uh, paradigm and so on. This is something that's very deep and it's very part of the culture. And so I'm I'm quite hopeful that these five you know big things embracing the whole uh, blockchain and and uh, and crypto revolution, moving towards a self sovereign identity, reinventing the model of government around. Uh, new technology, um, uh, creating uh, a powerful innovation economy that sort of uh, 
benefits everybody and rethinking the whole model of government itself, um, that these are five things that the administration would be wise to pick up on. You know, I didn't uh, mention that last theme, but I'll, I'll just say a word on it. That again, for a very for centuries, we've had a, uh, an old model of representative democracy, and it was, it was pretty good compared to what existed before with kings and queens and nobles made all the decisions. But, um, but we, elect, we created these um, elected or representative institutions, but there was a weak public mandate. Citizens were inert. Uh, politicians are often beholden to powerful interests. And mm -hmm. there's no opacity. And the model was uh, you vote, um, I rule. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a citizens are uh, pretty passive. And um, Donald Trump sort of, everyone talks about how effectively he used technology. Well, he did. But it was in aid of that old model of making citizens passive. I mean, he tweeted. He ran the government by Twitter. He, hired and fired uh, people by Twitter and everyone out there was a recipient of all of this. And so the challenge facing um, President Biden and um, Vice President Harris is not to have more followers on Twitter than Trump did or something like that. It's to turn the whole use of technology on its head and to use technology rather than to broadcast, to engage citizens in mm -hmm. creating government. And we identify a dozen ways that he could be doing this. So this, the report is a direct and very personal call to the president and the vice president in terms of how they use technology themselves to engage with citizens and to, to maybe turn the situation around where there's a complete crisis of legitimacy of American democracy yeah. today. I'm just, I, I'm just, as you were speaking, I'm just, I'm just envisioning, imagine a political smart contract where you you give your vote uh, only when some of the policies are executed on this smart contract. Um, imagine, imagine how that would change policy and politics in one fell swoop. I mean, there's t technology exists. It's just how we apply it. Yeah, at the core of this crisis of legitimacy is that politicians are not accountable to citizens. They're, they're accountable to the big funders that put them in power. I mean, 94% of Americans want background checks for firearms. Congress can't pass a law re reflecting the will of 94% of the population. So government for the people, by the people, of the people. I don't know. Um, but if, you, if you, your vote was in a smart contract, you'd be specifying not just who you're voting for, you'd be specifying a policy. And if, yeah. if the elected representative does not act in an accountable way, then there are consequences as determined by the contract. Maybe they don't get paid. Maybe funds don't flow. Maybe they get removed. And, um, you know, we're a little ways off from doing something like that, but it's not unthinkable. And now's the time to start looking at these. Thinking about it. Yeah. Especially when, when you know, the power hopefully re returns to us and we have our self-sovereign rights to our own data and our own decisions and our own money and our own value. Um, but you are a valuable asset uh, to all of us. Thank you, Don Tapscott, for these ideas. It's always a pleasure 
uh, to explore these visions of the future with you. Um, and, you know, always, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. And I read forecast news every week. You guys are doing a great job. So keep it up. Thank you, Don. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this latest episode of Word on the Block. I'm Angie Lau, Editor-in-Chief of Forecast News. Until the next time.